0: This episode of Imagination Skyway is sponsored by KMV Travel, a boutique travel agency that helps families plan personalized vacations and create unforgettable memories on land and at sea. Not only does KMV Travel specialize in Disney destinations, they also provide travel guidance for most major cruise lines and family theme parks, which means they're your ideal partner, whether you're looking to plan that perfect Disney vacation or seeking guidance on venturing somewhere new offering assistance with booking accommodations, tickets, dining experiences, ground transportation, stroller rentals, you name it. Like many in the industry, their services are 100% complimentary to guests, but where this team really stands out is their unmatched service from start to finish. From hello to see you real soon, KMV Travel provides the resources and support you need to have a stress-free vacation filled with magic, memories, and more. Listeners of the show can learn more and start planning your next vacation by visiting kmvtravel.com skyway. Welcome aboard Imagination Skyway, your grand podcast tour of the magic. I'm your host, Matthew Krull, and in today's episode I have the honor of chatting with Dave Goles, a longtime puppet designer and actor who has performed for the Muppets since 1973, lending his talents to such iconic Muppets as Gonzo the Great, Dr. Bunsen Honeydew, Waldorf, Boober Fraggle and Zoot from the Electric Mayhem, among countless others. Since 1955, The Muppets have been delighting, generations of audiences on the big screen, on the small screen, and yes, even at the Disney Parks. As a Muppet performer, Dave has appeared in all eight Muppet theatrical productions, and in 2023, he was named an honorary Imagineer by Walt Disney Imagineering at Destination D23 for his years of work on Disney Parks projects. In this episode, we discuss Dave's prolific career as a Muppet performer and his reflections on 50 years, and counting, with the Muppets. It's an episode you will not want to miss, and unlike a glorious three-hour finale, one that we certainly could not cover in a minute and a half. At the end of the show, we'll return to Imagination Central, where I'll share ways in which you can stay connected with Imagination Skyway, how you can discuss this topic with other members of our listener community, and how you can help to support and inspire the future of this show. Please remain seated, keep your hands and arms inside the podcast at all times, and enjoy your Grand Circle Tour aboard Imagination Skyway. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you so much for coming. I'm really excited to chat with you. I obviously have been following your career for a while, I've had the opportunity to see you at various events. And so it's exciting for me to get the chance to chat with you. And I hope the listeners enjoy our conversation as well. Um thinking about going through a few different categories during today's conversation and like to start at the very beginning. Um, we're not going to go that far back, but I have read from various different sources that you had Two passions as a young kid. First being puppets, which of course translates into your Muppet career. And then the second being model cars. Uh, I, I know there's a long span in between that point. So when you eventually worked with the Muppets, but I'm curious if you feel like those two interests or how those interests ultimately helped lead you into a career with the Muppets.
1: Oh, it's easy, 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 easy. Okay. When I was a kid, my dad's dad, my grandfather was a car guy. He came over from Germany when he was 16 years old and worked in a, in a copper mine uh, for two years, solid seven days a week, saved every penny, bought a candy store in a small town in the Sierra Foothills. And then uh, when cars came around in 1907, He got fascinated by them, and he bought a Rio, which was a one-cylinder car that looked like a buggy that would go 35 miles an hour, no seatbelts, just sitting way up high like a buggy, and people wanted him to drive them to San Francisco from the Sierras, and uh, he loved this new technology. I mean, this was cutting edge at the time, so he got into it. He wound up uh, having the first Ford dealership in that part of the country, which he did for about 20, 25 years. And so my dad grew up with the Ford Garage being part of the part of his life. And so he learned all about cars. He loved them. And when I was little, it kind of transferred to me. I loved cars. And I, I, when I was maybe seven years old, I started building plastic model car kits. And I I would run into problems, you know, I would have trouble putting something together. And I would ask my dad for help, and he would always come over and say, well, what's the problem here? What's the problem? And I said, well, I can't, there are th- three things I need to glue together, and I can't hold two of them while I do the other one. And he would say, okay, well, then, so you need something to hold them together. And so what he talked me into was building a tool. And and the way that we arrived at that was by defining the problem. And that was such a, a, a huge life lesson. I don't think he even... I don't think he even realized the magnitude of the lesson because it was about everything in life. If whatever your problem is, if you define it properly, it narrows down the possible solutions, makes it much easier to solve. So that was a huge part of being interested in cars. You know, it was like a a, a huge gift that came from that. Um, I liked cars. I built a lot of car models all the way through high school. I entered contests. I won a lot of trophies. Um, And that led me to going to college at Art Center. Now, parallel to all that, I got interested in puppet shows when I was about five or six, five, I guess. And I loved puppets. And and even as a five-year-old, I knew they were puppets. I knew they were machines, and I was interested in how they worked. I loved the fact that marionettes had mouth movements with those little slots going down from the edges of the mouth to the chin. And I was fascinated by it. It was different than, I now I deal with five-year-olds and they believe the puppet is real, you know. But for some reason, I I didn't ever have that issue. I loved them, but I knew they were machines. And um, so that interest was just on fire with me till I was maybe six. And then it kind of went dormant. But But even still, I always went to stores when I was looking in a toy store I looked for. A dummy with a stick in the middle, you know, with a stick with mechanisms on it. Because my parents had given me a howdy doody dummy that had a string coming out of the back of the neck, and I I wanted the real thing. I wanted a hollow body with a stick inside. Anyway, I'm now 77 years old. If I go into a toy store, I'm still looking for those dummies, which is crazy. But it just indicates how deeply that passion was buried, you know, embedded. I should say. And um, because now you know I'm a grown-up, I have money. I could go, I could get a, a vent dummy made, or I could buy one. But it's not that I want one; it's just that I'm trained to want one, <laughs> you know. So anyway, those two things started really early, and they kind of converged. And um, and then I chose a completely different career, which was designing products, when I got out of college, and I only did that for about three years. and and at that point I discovered Sesame Street and got absolutely curious about how they did it. How so many different disciplines, like puppeteers, um, puppet makers, costume makers, screenplay writers, um, directors, performers, how this all got together, You, you must have had five or six or seven people trying to make this illusion work trying to make Ernie and Bert look so convincing and I I realized how successful it was they were so good at it that I just I I, I just had to know and that curiosity led me to meet first Frank Oz and then Bonnie Erickson and Carol Spinney and uh, you know it just became it became a, a tractor beam that I couldn't escape.
0: It's amazing to hear that the passion still lives on today, and it's definitely a testament to your points. Of you're in, uh, you clearly are in the right place, and have this true passion for what you do, and it comes across in everything that you do as well. I- I'm glad you brought up Sesame Street because I was gonna ask how that week went. I know that you went to go see Frank Oz in a giving a speech, I believe, in Oakland or talk in Oakland. Yeah, yeah, no, it's and uh, and kind of. Got the courage to ask him if you ever made it to New York, if you would, if he could take you to Sesame Street and he That's followed right. up and he actually did. So um, I'd love to well, hear a little another more bit about of that a-,
1: a month later, I got a business trip, which I never, I never <laughs> had to travel for business, but all of a sudden I had to go to New Jersey. And so I took a week of vacation on the end of that trip and headed into New York City, slept on a friend's floor and went over to Sesame Street because I contacted Frank, you know.
0: So how was that week for you? I imagine having seen it and getting this, you mentioned having an interest in in Sesame Street. Um, You know, what were some of the things that you, you learned that week or that helped to encourage you to continue forward with that career?
1: Well, it was a chance to visit Creative Nirvana. You know, I, first of all, realized this is where they made Sesame Street. I was in the building. I was watching them do it second they were all really nice people third they were on the same page they were all about making everything better and working for the best idea and those those things just made me realize that i it, it sort of reinforced the fact that as a designer i wasn't really in a world that felt as good as that you know i mean i worked for hp which at the time was the greatest company going you know they were they were kind to their employees and they were wonderful to work for, but I just felt like I was in the wrong place kind of. And this felt like the right place, but of course it was in New York City and I didn't live in New York City. I I didn't have a job there or anything, so I didn't think anything was gonna come of it, but I knew I'd never forget it.
0: (laughs) And ultimately that did lead to that career for you. And obviously the Muppets have certainly evolved over the last 50 plus years. And, you know, thinking back to the beginning, um, what were some of those early days like as you were starting up with the Muppets?
1: Well, first of all, I walked in the door and Bonnie Erickson was running the workshop and she said, You're three minutes late. <laughs> right? Which uh, set the tone. I had I had this was a Monday morning and I had landed uh Thursday evening and rented an apartment and moved in and cleaned out the freezer which was full of rotten meat and uh, over the weekend and so I got there and then Bonnie hit me with that which was great. (laughs) Um, And then the second thing she said was um, we're moving down to this location from down the street go down there and on the second floor in the back there are all these file cabinets full of muppets paper you know cardboard file cabinets we're moving so just go down and grab things and bring them up here. So I did and of course in so doing every time I opened a drawer I saw some puppet that I had seen on Ed Sullivan or or on on um, you know one of their specials and I couldn't believe I that out of out of the whole of New York City 9 million people in the daytime and no 18 million people in the daytime and 9 million people at night there I was in the place where these things were and I would carry them down the street with great loving attention and so that was my first week moving Muppets and it was so exciting to see all of this stuff and to be in the place where they were I couldn't believe it I mean I mean even now it gives me chills opening a drawer and seeing phenomena in there
0: it's incredible
1: unbelievable it's so great it was so absolutely wonderful so uh the second thing I noticed when I went into the shop was that uh the everybody who worked there was a character They were really strong, highly opinionated people. Jim hired people. He wasn't afraid of people. And he didn't try to hire people like himself. He hired people who were different than himself. And at first they scared me. And then I realized, oh gosh, over time, I I could see that each one of them could do something that none of the others could do. And that was Jim's strength in, in gathering collaborators. So that was extraordinary to see, Uh, whereas, you know, I had a girlfriend, later on, I had a girlfriend, and I took her over to HP. (laughs) I I probably shouldn't say this on, on the air, but I took her into HP to see a friend of mine who worked there. And, you know, it's all beige, and there are cubicles, and they're all beige, and the desks are beige, and the phones are black. And so I took her in to see my friend. And we walked out, and I, and I was thinking, "How oh, she's been to Silicon Valley? This is state-of-the-art stuff. This is where it's all happening." And I said, "What did you think of? What did you think of that?" And she said, "Communism." <laughs> you no, know, it wasn't the world of the arts. It was all homogenized, right? Even though the people who worked there were, they still had characters there, and it was still pretty interesting. And the work was amazing. But you know, I went from this beige world into this full color world, and it was a vivid, vivid change.
0: Definitely an amazing uh, difference having come from also a corporate world. You're right. It's very monotone and entering into a colorful world like that has got to be just so inspiring from a creative perspective as well. And I'm glad you brought up Jim. Of course, it's hard to have a conversation about The Muppets without at least talking a little bit about Jim Henson. And not that I want to spend too much time here, but, uh, you know, thinking about, Your experiences working with him, uh, I'm sure you have many, but is there a a particular memory or story that stands out that made him unique or made him who he was or something that characterizes your memories of him?
1: Well, there are millions of things probably, but I'll I'll start with the beginning, which was when I did go to visit Sesame Street, I spent a week there and carol spinney saw these puppets that i had brought along and he said oh these are really good you should go meet bonnie erickson who runs the workshop so i did one day i went over to the workshop met her and she said oh these are great you 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 build nice puppets and uh you ought to meet jim but he's in france so about a month later he uh he called me up and we met in la and uh at this point, I didn't—I hadn't seen Jim. I didn't know what he looked like. I didn't know his personality was like or anything. And when I talked to him on the phone, it sounded like Ernie was calling me. He just sounded so nice. And when I met him, uh, he was the sweetest guy. He was just so kind and warm, and it was all easy and comfortable. You know, it wasn't like a job interview where you're scared or where you're trying to figure out what, what you should say. I just met somebody who felt like a kindred spirit, and he was... He was threatening in no way at all. You know, he was just uh, just a sweet man. And he was like a Pied Piper. He, he was going to be doing really interesting things. And he never gave anybody pressure for not joining or for joining. He never gave anybody pressure if they decided to leave. He felt that they would always be connected. He was so different than the normal uh, business environment. And I felt great from the beginning, and uh, I felt completely comfortable talking to him and saying anything, and that was the beginning of our relationship, which became a, a deep friendship over time.
0: Definitely incredible to, to reflect back on how that all started. Oh, and yeah, wait, wait, there's one more. Uh, oh, I yeah, go ahead.
1: I will say that that um, early on, uh, he could see me being involved uh, designing and building puppets, and I said, well, I'm also, I'm really kind of interested in performing. And I, cause I did feel I had a certain uh, familiarity with it, you know, I just felt that it came easily to me. So a couple months after that first meeting in LA, he came by the Bay Area and I had made some videos by then. This is probably three or four months later actually. And I showed him the videos and when I picked him up at his motel, it was raining and I was in my Volkswagen Beetle and I was taking him to the nicest restaurant in the area. I thought I'd you know, treat him to a good dinner. And I saw him standing outside in, in, in the port cochere of the hotel, and rain was hitting his broad-brimmed hat, and he was very thin to the point of being gaunt and wearing a raincoat. And the rain was dripping off the brim and going down his coat, and he, he looked vulnerable. He looked so thin that I felt protective, and I think a lot of people did but he got into my beetle and we went over to the restaurant and had a great dinner. And again, it was comfortable. We were joking around, we were having fun. And, um, I only mention that because a lot of feel people felt protective of him because he was so modest and, um, gentle and he was, you know, he was in the midst of show business. So that's a pretty, that can be a rugged world, but, um, I think the fact that he was thin, he worked really hard, he looked tired sometimes, but he was so happy when he was tired. You know, it all made you just love him. It all made you love him and you wanted to help him. And uh, I don't know, those are just a couple of recollections from the very beginning.
0: I love that. That's uh, some really great memories that you have there. And so we should probably talk about some of your characters and some of your projects that you've worked on which i know are, are numerous and we're certainly not going to go through all of them but uh, you know it's hard to speak to you without talking about gonzo of course arguably the most iconic muppet that you've brought to life and one of the things i loved in sort of doing research for this discussion was that you describe a lot about gonzo having these three acts this first act being insecurity the second being excitement the third being soulfulness and you describe how that mirrored your own personal journey as well. Um, Mm -hmm. sort of a, you know, two part question here. First, I'm curious if you could describe a little bit more about that. And second, as I was reflecting on that, I was wondering if your personal growth led and helped Gonzo's character development, or if it was the other way around.
1: This is great questions. Great questions. Um, I felt like an imposter in show business. You know, fairly quickly. I joined the Muppets in the, uh summer of 73 and then I left, left, went away to get out of New York. And then I got sucked back in, in, in the fall of 74. So it wasn't, it was in January, no sorry, I think it was about February of 76, we were starting the Muppet Show. So I was really green, you know, and I hadn't really performed regularly on a series until then, so. I got there and then every week a, a, a major global celebrity would walk in the door. And I felt like I, I was supposed to be back in Burbank on my parents' couch watching, you know, I was on the wrong side of the screen. And I didn't belong there. I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I was trying to learn. Um, but you know, when, when it, just name them, anybody came in, any of Danny Kay, Mac Davis, uh, Lena Horne, these are all legends at the time, you know. Um, When they walked in, I just thought, oh, oh boy, I don't belong here. And I would go out the other door. Luckily, our rehearsal room had two doors. And I just didn't want to be uh, in a position where I would have to communicate with them, you know, as such an inferior being. So that was the beginning of it. And so that was reflected in how I performed Gonzo, along with the fact that his eyes were really downcast. He didn't have any change in eye expression. So, uh that sort of reinforced my instinct to play him as uh, somebody with low self-esteem okay that was phase 1 and then phase 2 was by the by this time it's a few years later i'm starting to think well maybe i could do this i might be a, maybe i'm a, maybe i can do it and that's when bill prady came along who was one of our uh in-house writers and started writing gonzo saying that is so cool and uh And by that time, I was ready for the enthusiasm, and I had already built a new Gonzo that could open his eyes wide and be excited. So um, that sort of led to creating Phase 2. And then Phase 3, of course, happened when we did, uh, Jim had died and we did Muppet Christmas Carol. And uh, Jerry Jewell wrote Gonzo delivering Dickensian narrative prose, and that was a chance for the soulfulness to come in. And, of course, we all felt it, and we all felt the need to honor jim you know the real inner need to do that
0: so this leads me to uh you brought up three different topics that i also wanted to discuss which was interesting in the course of that answer and the first is the idea of imposter syndrome uh, because i feel like that is incredibly common for most people uh you know mm-hmm. it's rare to yeah, come I across so. someone who who has that full confidence truly from the beginning. How did you overcome that feeling of imposter syndrome or what advice would you offer to someone who is feeling that way?
1: Well, I don't know. I guess you're in a, you feel like an imposter because you know you've just had an ordinary life and you, you might be in a situation that you hadn't anticipated given a uh, stature that you hadn't anticipated and if you so if you feel that way i suppose i would say well take a good look at uh, you you are just a person and and you have certain qualities that seem to have gotten you here you need to honor those qualities i suppose but it's a it's not that simple really i think it you know in my case it was like five or six years of therapy where i came to to honor my own contribution to my success. But at the same time, I don't have imposter syndrome anymore and yet I realize the whole thing is luck, right? It's luck. And you know, people could say, yeah, but you worked really hard. Yeah, I was lucky to be able to. I don't have ADD. I was able to focus and work hard. That's luck, luck of birth. I think everything's for me, everything's luck. So I don't, I don't feel that it's appropriate to be grandiose about how hard I worked.
0: Yeah. Luck is always, always a part of everything that we do. So I, I have to agree with that as well. Um, now you mentioned the at Christmas Carol. I know this is going back number of years, and the reason I, I was thinking about this recently was not only because we're recording this during the holiday season, but also we just heard Michael Caine announce that he's retiring from acting. And oh, I hadn't heard that. It's that I think that was a couple of weeks ago. He might have he might have mentioned that his done with his last project or working on his last project um again i know this is going back a while but do you have any particular memories of of working with him or any other memories of working on the book christmas carol
1: yeah i'll tell you one. well i've said this before but i when when i heard that it was going to be michael kane i thought oh he's so soft looking he's he doesn't look spindly and uh harsh like like the way i imagined scrooge and I thought, gee, it's too bad. They just chose a star instead of maybe the right character. And then he went in and did it. And I realized, oh, he's the right one because he completely, he completely carried it off. I mean, I'm, I'm always moved by his performance. I cannot get through that picture dry-eyed. So he was the right one. And then working with him, he was very easy to work with, very nice. Always came in totally prepared. He always knew his lines. He had a dresser who was in his trailer and they ran lines, you know, and he didn't come into the studio until it was time to shoot. And then he was a dream to work with. He was so good at what he did. Third thing I would say about Michael Caine and it's been said before by other people too is that he doesn't blink when he's in a shot. And it's true. I, I don't know how <laughs> you do that because I've tried to not blink and my eyes start to burn. You know, it's just, <laughs> and all I can think about is how much my eyes hurt. But he never breaks, he feels a blink, breaks the contact with the audience, and he never, ever does it on camera.
0: It's incredible to see. You're right. He never really does. <laughs> you could see that in just about any film that he's in. Um, now, the other sort of question that I had that you had referenced a couple of questions ago, or that leads me to this, is throughout the Muppets history, there's always been celebrity cameos or live actors intermingling with the Muppets. And I find that really interesting. I'm curious if you have any insights into why that is, or how that is a part of the Muppets formula or how it impacts the guests or the viewer experience.
1: Yeah. I can't give you an official answer to that. It's a good question. Uh, But I know in the beginning I always thought, well, it's kind of a crutch. We're always just trading on their fame to get established. And later on I realized um that interacting in the real world with real people underscores the reality of these characters. And I know that the actors buy into it. They, you know, you can't you can't deny it. I mean, I can talk to Fozzie Bear uh with Frank standing right next to him. And I look at Fozzie Bear because he's the one that's interesting. Nothing, yeah. you know, nothing against Frank, but He's not as interesting as Fozzie. <laughs> and and so the, the magic of the these puppets is that they are so commanding. They get your attention. And they they uh part of the illusion is that they're in the real world with real human beings interacting. So I, I think there's a wisdom in it too. You know, it's it, in in you know, at this point now some of the humans want to be in something with the Muppets, you know, to help themselves. So it's kind of come full circle. But um regardless it's I, I think it just under underlines and, and and enhances the magic.
0: That was my hypothesis. So I'm glad that I was on the right track <laughs> with that thinking, but I needed to, Well, it's. I don't have the right answers, but I'm just curious what, uh, what oh, your I thoughts don't were either. as well. I don't <laughs> either. Um, so we talked about Gonzo. I know there are many additional muppets that you've performed brought to life. And we have Dr. Bunsen, honeydew, Waldorf, zoot, uh, the list goes on. Uh, each one of them, has obviously a a unique personality and my question here is what goes into the developments of the personalities of these muppets and at what stage so is that they you would develop the muppet character and then attach the personality and we talked a little bit about that with gonzo to the way the muppet looked or was it the personality that informed the way the muppet looked or how how did those two coexist
1: That's another great question. Um, The roots of it go back to childhood, and there was a third influence that I hadn't mentioned yet, which was that my dad and I would have breakfast on weekends in the kitchen, and we would stay there for an hour or so talking after breakfast, and he would tell me all these stories of the colorful characters he grew up with in the gold rush country, the the Sierra foothills. Um, He talked about Uh, how all of his friends had nicknames. He talked about um, these figures, like there was an Indian uh, who lived in Sonora, uh, but he couldn't handle alcohol, and he would always get drunk and fall down in the street on Saturday night. And so my dad grew up with that character and with all these other characters around him. And... You know, he wasn't a guy who followed uh, entertainment at all. You know, he wasn't like a movie watcher. We, we watched television at home. That's about it. But he loved characters. And he, he had all these stories about real-life characters that I just hung on. I loved hearing him tell me about these things. So it sort of nurtured a growth, a, a love of character for me. And and then I started uh, enjoying my friends who were characters, you know. And this kept on right through my life still to this day. I love knowing people who are unusual characters and I made sure that I was friends with a wide range of personalities. So with that love, I think when I started doing the Muppets, um, I appreciated latitude, right? I liked all different kinds of characters and the, the entree for me and it wasn't conscious at first was just that they were flawed. You know, there was some sort of thing that would be viewed as a flaw by outsiders that I loved about that character. And and in my case, I found flaws within myself that I could isolate and amplify and make into characters or fit to characters that were written. And um, it, it had an, an unanticipated therapeutic benefit because I I saw this flaw in myself and made it lovable by making it endearing or funny. And so it was a therapeutic in the sense that it made me accept myself more, you know. Um, One example was Bunsen Honeydew, who was overly specific, misses the big picture. That's his character. And uh, he doesn't see what, he doesn't really see what's going on around him, but he fixates on details. That's a part of me, for sure. And... uh, and then I thought, well, it's really funny. It was also people that I knew at Hewlett-Packard. You know, these were scientific types who were like that. They were kind of myopic, and they were focused on these tiny little details, and, and yet they were they were funny people, you know, because of it. Um, I had another friend at HP, a guy, I think I'll say his name. Jack Elmberg was his name. And he he was one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life, and we haven't stayed in touch. I really would love to see him again. But he, he, he was somebody who never blinked. He just had this kind of glazed stare. And he had a high concept way of looking at everything. And one day I had a newspaper sitting on my desk at HP that had a photograph of a, uh, a riot that was being covered. You know, I think it was a race riot. And, uh, and he came over and looked at it and he said, uh, hmm, looks like a picture of a crystal. Maybe it's about the crystalline structure of race riots. And I love that. I mean, I just thought, this guy is brilliant. He has this <laughs> high-concept overview that puts an overlay on everything that is just surreal. And I just loved him. Jack was so clever and so funny that his family moved a couple of times, and I helped them both times. They moved from one house to another. I made sure I was over there loading things and helping. Um, that's just how I'm drawn to characters, I guess, you know, that's, that's something that I've luckily been loaded up with.
0: Yeah. I love all those. Uh, I mean, all of them are incredible characters, the flaws to your points. Um, I love that they kind of draw from, a lot of your personality too so it it helps to add to the authenticity i feel of those characters that you perform and it makes them more believable and more real and more human oh it's
1: great plus i had a lot of flaws to start with you know (laughs) that that made it uh, you know possible to have lots of characters but i i think it's that appreciation of characters and and the this fact that they're essentially based on flaws. You know, there's there's some, some little thing that they can't do or, or can't cope with that is makes them endearing and it's lovable and and it's fun. And so you can, you can seize on something like that to build a character from.
0: Yeah. Like Uh, for example,
1: I mean, I had a funny thing. There's a late character that I did who hasn't really been used much since, but in 2015 we did a series called the Muppets and I had this character called Chip who was an IT guy. Okay, so he was he was kind of, I don't know, maybe on the spectrum a little bit, but um, I had a way of making him talk that, that was fun and we kind of started developing him as we went along. But one day the director, Randall Einhorn, who was directing uh, that series, uh, came to me and he said, you know, all these characters are running through, why don't you have him at his desk? And then he sees them go by and he starts running along behind them like a little kid. You know, like he just he's just drawn. And I remember being a little kid and having that exact thing happen to me. The big kids went running by and I just was like loping along behind, like almost like trotting, you know, Yeah. and trying to keep up with them. And so I, I jumped into it and where they were going was into another room where uh, electro pop was playing. And I thought, Oh my God, this would be Chip's music. He's a computer nerd. He would love this electro music. So I asked our workshop, we had uh, Scott Johnson was there, and uh, um, uh, Jurgen Ferguson was there. And I, I said, Do you guys have any tongues? And they went running out of the room, and they came back from the workshop with a tongue that was maybe uh, four inches long. So I just we just got double faced, slapped in the Chip's mouth. And so he went into an ecstatic state with this music, almost like being possessed. And just started dancing at random. There were no dance moves that we recognized, but it was almost like you know getting shocks to the nerves. Right. And he was just responding to this music, and and it was so much fun that I I said, "Do you have any longer tongues?" And they went running away, and they came back with a longer tongue, like six inches long. And I put that in his mouth, and and he was just in the background. This was. This was nothing that you might even notice. You know, <laughs> you know, people would watch the foreground action and miss this entirely. But it thrilled me, and still does, that that was an insight into his character, that the one thing that would make him cut loose would be music of this type. And, and that the reaction, him dancing, was involuntary. Because, like, you know, one thing I love is when people dance, there's ego involved, and they're trying to put on a character, and they get a certain dance face on and uh and it feels like an affectation that is that comes across to me as an as a vulnerability sometimes and when you know when chip got when he got stimulated by his music there was no control of his body it was just spasms flinches and and his tongue was hanging out it was as though he was having a a uh uh, uh what do you call it a uh it was like an epileptic seizure when he heard that music, he lost complete control of everything and just flinched and moved. And that was his form of dancing that he was not even in control of.
0: Amazing. I love that. It's, uh, I'm now thinking about him when I dance. You're absolutely right.
1: <laughs> it's, it's a posture. We're, it we all like Think okay, how do I look cool? How do I try to look cool? <laughs> And by the fact that we're trying to look cool, we don't look cool. Exactly. <laughs> it's just, and I always, that's why I don't dance. I, I think it, it just puts me in too much vulnerability.
0: I, but I don't I, mind but dancing, like, but if there's a video of me dancing, I will never watch it.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I was uh, in the Parent Trap when I was a kid, the first Parent Trap film. Oh, wow. Is, and um, I, and I, when I found out we had to dance, I had a partner who I had known from school I was an extra and this girl was there that i knew so we became partners and i said okay we're gonna dance uh let's get in the corner and we moved over to the corner and it, you know an hour or two went by and then they were ready to shoot and the camera door opened and the camera rolled right up to us from the from the corner and so i said okay let's go to the other corner she said "No, nope, i moved once for you i'm not moving again so i'm in the movie wearing a palomino sport coat patsy's with me we're dancing and there's one moment where I never even noticed it, but I, I I was in profile and I turned and I looked kind of toward the camera and then back, and it was just for like a half a second. And Richard Hunt noticed it. And he used to make fun of me by doing that move, that look to the right or the left, whatever it was. Anyway, so, the, you know, I had my own experience with being literally caught forever on camera <laughs> when I was dancing and trying to not be noticed.
0: I feel Anyhow. like a lot of listeners are gonna be are gonna be going to the parent trap right now and trying to find you. Oh yeah, CD. yeah. And
1: when you and then when you see the uh series, the Muppets, um you gotta look for Chip being overtaken by the music.
0: I'm absolutely know? gonna be looking for that too. Yeah, that's... it's just
1: as though you hook electrodes up to him and <laughs> and now he's dancing in a way that's completely involuntary.
0: <laughs> I love that. Um the 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 last core theme I wanted to to talk about before um, like one or two wrap up questions was because I, this podcast does focus so much on Disney and the Disney parks. I read in it arrived just a couple of days ago. It was perfect timing. The the latest Disney D twenty three magazine that has an interview with you in it. That the after you graduated from Art Center, you ended up going for an interview at wet enterprises which is now of course walt disney imagineering i know that didn't go according to plan it didn't lead to a direct role so i'm not going to ask about the interview but i'm more curious about what prompted the desire to want to become an imagineer
1: oh from the moment the disneyland television program came on which later became walt disney presents i was uh what was i nine years old he was teasing the opening of the park. The park took one year to build. Somehow they built it in a year, and I wanted to go there so badly. And uh, but then I got chicken so I couldn't go for a while. But anyhow, all, all during that year, I, I was just fascinated. I'd see the bulldozers digging the jungle crews and making all these fantasy elements. And of course, nobody did it the way Walt did. There had never been an amusement park like this before, and I was. In love with it. And then when I got to go there, I was, I stayed in love and we went, we went about every year. So by the time I got out of college, well, I should say that while I was in college, there was another student there who was a guy who was about 45, and I was maybe 25. No, I was like, tw- like 21 when I started college. No, I was, wait a minute, I was 19 when I started college. So I was really young. And th- so this middle aged man was a student there and he had come from, Imagineering or Wed Enterprises to become an industrial designer, and then he went back and he, he spent the rest of his career. And so th- through him, I got an interview after I graduated, and I really wanted to be an Imagineer. I was—that's all I wanted. I offered to work for thirty-seven uh, percent of the going rate for a designer. I just said, I just want to be here, and they said, Well, we just don't need any more industrial designers right now. We have two, and. Um, so there was no opening, no job. And then I went on, the rest of my life happened. But I, I still think it's the, to me, it's the heart of the whole company. It's where the, the, the purest and most creative stuff happens.
0: Yeah, you and I are aligned on that. It's definitely the one of the core topics again of this podcast. But you have had the chance to work with Imagineering in some capacity over your career. So, yeah. um, what have been some of the most exciting projects or moments? Now that you, you know, later down in life, got the chance to actually not, maybe not be an Imagineer, but work with Imagineering.
1: Well, I got to work with uh, Im- Imagineering Research and Development. That's a little department that does kind of cutting-edge stuff on a project called the Muppet Mobile Lab. And I worked with them, I got it was, seems like it was a couple years, maybe more, um, on the development of that thing. And basically what it was was like a little blimp spaceship that was supported on struts by a two-wheeled uh, mechanism from a, uh, what do you call that? Uh, The Segway? Yeah. Yeah, The whole thing was a big structure that was altogether about seven or eight feet high, and it all balanced on these two wheels, and it was Bunsen in a little blimp kind of spaceship thing, and it was pedaled by Beaker, who was up above it, behind it, on a structure that allowed him to pedal, which powered the whole thing. And when this thing traveled through the park, it would Totter forward and backward a little bit. Anyway, I worked with these guys and they were wonderful people. I mean, it was everything I ever expected from Imagineering. They were a wonderful group. And so I came down to LA numerous times to help in the development of that thing and offer feedback and and do and test some of the mechanisms that they had built. And then we play tested it at Disneyland for a week. And that was really fun. And then um, another time we play tested in Florida. And then it wound up in the Hong Kong Park. And th- this thing, they said, was as complex as a Cessna. This, wow. this one vehicle. It was really complex. It had computer systems. It had all sorts of balance systems and uh, seven cameras on it so that I could work it in a room by myself and see everybody who was around it. So it was a very complex thing and it was really fun to work on. And then when it went to Hong Kong, I had to go over there and try to teach the, the the puppeteers that they were using how to do Bunsen's voice. And that was hysterical. We spent two days in a conference room, and you know, Bunsen's voice is way up high, just behind his nostrils. And Cantonese is spoken way back in the throat. Oh, yeah. oh, 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 oh you know. And so they they said, we, we can't make that sound. You know, we don't know how to make that sound. And so we had to work out a way for them to do Bunsen's character in Cantonese that made sense, you know, for them. So it was really about getting down to the fact that he, the essence of his character, which was that he missed the details. I was so focused on details that he missed the big picture. yeah And um, anyhow, so we, we spent two days just laughing ourselves silly, trying to figure out how in Cantonese, you could do this character without actually sounding like Bunsen. Right. We, we got to something that worked, and then it worked there for five years. It was in there for five years. Came back to Florida. We were going to set it up to use it in Florida, and then the motherboard burnt out. And it had been programmed in a language that was no longer in use. And so they didn't know how to reprogram it. They didn't know how to fix it. They didn't have... I don't know if they had enough documentation to print another motherboard, so it ended up, I think, being being disused. But it was quite an experience to work with Imagineering on that.
0: Incredible! And now, yeah. uh, this past year, I was there at Destination D twenty three. So you, I saw you actually are now an honorary Imagineer. So yeah, fifty years later, who you are has a, an actual Imagineer or an honorary Imagineer.
1: We have to hand the credit for this to Lee Slaughter, who is our executive with. With uh, Muppet Studio, the Disney executive who runs the Muppet Studio. And she's a gift from God because she has really gotten down to the essence of what the Muppets are and been the best advocate we could ever wish for. And in knowing all of us, and in knowing me in this case, she had heard that story about wanting to be an Imagineer and she remembered it on my 50th anniversary and made this happen. And the weird thing is they have given out very few of those helmets to people. You know, Imagineering has given out a few of them over the years. And then they had decided to stop. And so I think I I got the last one. But it is a work of great beauty. It's a beautiful hard hat with hand-painted Mickey on it and hand-painted lettering and my name and everything. It's so exciting to have that and to finally... Be at least an honorary Imagineer.
0: Yeah, that's. I, I love that full circle story. So, um, I have I have two sort of wrap up questions for you, Dave. One of them is about the Muppets, and one of them is about you. And you you actually again kind of led me into this question by talking about the essence of the Muppets or mentioning that. Uh, you know, thinking back, the Muppets is one of those franchises where they have transcended pop culture for over fifty years. I mean, it has been this force that. People love the Muppets. Yet my daughter, who's not even two yet, has already we've watched *The Muppet Treasure Island* now. I think three times because she just loves that movie. So yeah. I'm curious, what do you attribute to that continued success of these characters, many of whom have been around since the beginning um, for over you know for fifty over fifty years now?
1: They touch us. I think ideally, when we do good work, it moves people. It touches the audience um it's a lot deeper than just making funny things that wiggle you know these are these are beings and i you know i've shared you uh some of my ways of creating characters but everybody has their own and i mean everybody everybody every writer has their own way everybody in the workshop has their own way we have the best puppet makers in the world and they're a huge part of what we do because while they're building something they you know a character they start thinking of Idiosyncrasies that are that are in sync with that character. Like I remember when Link Hogthrob was being built, and he was going to be used in pigs in space on the Muppet Show. Um, I, I was sitting around. Bonnie was making him. We were all sitting, working on our own projects. I was working on Crazy Harry. Bonnie was working on Link, and she said uh, he should have a uh, she he should have a gold chain because that was a big thing in the early '70s. You know that uh, Link would have a gold chain around his neck. You know, and and then uh, he was going to have chest hair. Now pigs have bristles; they don't have regular hair. But yeah. she felt that Link and and it was not exactly just Bonnie. It was all of us talking about it. I I'm giving Bonnie credit, but it came a lot of ideas came from around the room. You know, just rather than just the person who's working on something. But um, he ha- he wore a wig for chest hair. So he had this affectation that he had chest hair like a like a, a hunk would have, like a, a male chauvinist pig would have, and he would have his gold chain because he was a male chauvinist pig. That was a phrase that was new at the time. And so that's what you know, Bonnie was going for when she built him. And of course Jim came to the shop every day to check on the progress, usually twice a day, morning and evening, and he loved all of this. You know, he always encouraged is cross-pollination. So the workshop has great input in what we do. Writers have great input, performers have great input, and we're all working in service of the best idea, which is something that our producer from Fraggle Rock, Larry Merkin used to say. And I think he noticed it, he observed it. Like, you know, if I have some idea for a character and somebody else suggests something better, it's the arts, man, you can't argue. If it's better, we all know it. So yeah. we use it, right? You can't cheat on these tests. It's art. You put it on the wall. You with all the other ideas, and it's clear what's what works best. So we all are enthusiasts of that. We all are happy to have our idea displaced by something better.
0: I love that. It's all all for the end product, and yeah,
1: and it's the truth. All it has to yeah. be is, it, you know, these are characters are based on humans. And they're, and they're us. They're, they're us. They're the audience. We want the audience to feel that we are, that our characters are them, parts of them or people they know. And so it's a stylized way of doing character comedy and character satire.
0: That's a great way to think about it. I thinking about the last question here, uh, kind of turning this over to you. I know that I hope you have much more left in you and many more years, of uh, many years to go. But as you're reflecting on 50 years now, what are you thinking about in terms of the legacy you're hoping to leave behind with the Muppets?
1: I don't think about it. I, it's weird. I just don't think about it. I don't think about That's awards. Good. You know, we just got some Emmy nominations. I don't really think you can, you can have art that wins and art that loses. I think art is an inner individual transaction with each viewer, whether it's a painting or dance or sculpture or television or a, you know, a character or animation, whatever that art is, really every time it gets perceived by somebody, it's a new transaction. And all that matters is that transaction. So the same film could be considered great art by you. And I could think, oh, it's terrible by me. And we're both right right? So I don't understand the idea of giving awards to art. Somebody wins and somebody loses. It's really propelled by business, you know, because if you can win an award, you get more money, whether you're a studio or an actor, you know, that's that's one effect of it. And then there's the prestige aspect. I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't really respond to that, particularly myself. I'm kind of proud. I have an Emmy over here. I'm kind of proud of that when somebody sees it, but I don't, I don't show it to people. Cause really it's about doing it, not, not winning something. Yeah. The great joy comes from doing it.
0: I respect that even more about you. So I I, I love that answer. Um, well, Dave, I'm sure we could spend, you know, I could spend at least hours chatting with you, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I'm so glad that we had the chance to talk a bit and reflect on this milestone. And, uh, so I want to really thank you and appreciate your time for chatting with me today.
1: Okay. Well, now I have a bunch of questions for you. Do you oh, have an hour. I, I, I do. Let's go. I want to, I want to find out where you came from. Okay. <laughs> so, what got you interested in podcasting in the first place?
0: I have always listened to podcasts since they've come. In. Welcome back to Imagination Central. As you disembark, please remember to remain fully seated until the podcast comes to a complete stop. Then gather your belongings and watch your head and step as you exit. After you exit the episode, I encourage you to engage with the show by following Imagination Skyway on your favorite social media app. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to share it with anyone who might enjoy our discussion today. And leave us a rating or review in your favorite podcast app if you have a moment and do love the show. If you're listening on Spotify or already following us on social media, be sure to head to one of those places and answer our question associated with this episode, which is for you to tell me your favorite Muppet film and your favorite Muppet character. Plus, be sure to explore Imagination Skyway on Patreon at Patreon.com, where you can enjoy bonus podcast episodes, on-demand scenic audio recorded at the parks, and even more content to enjoy, as well as a private community of listeners where we host weekly watch parties, small group video calls, and lots more fun. Last but certainly not least, remember that achieving your dreams all begins with some self-belief, a plan of action, and perhaps a bit of inspiration. It's all possible if you're willing to put in the time, the energy, and the work to make your dreams come to life. And as Dave Gole says, to have a little bit of luck as well. Thank you so much for riding aboard Imagination Skyway. And remember, if we can dream it, we can do it.